NERVA stands for Nuclear Engines for Rocket Vehicle Applications. So their whole thing was designing a nuclear thermal rocket, and they did it. Hmm. It was ready to fly. If we had gone to Mars in the early 1980s, like we were told in Apollo, NERVA was the engine that was going to get us that. And I've been incredibly fortunate to talk to some of the people that were involved in the program. They overcame a huge number of technical hurdles that we still use that information today. They're the first ones to figure out how to handle cryogenic hydrogen propellant. Hmm. Every single time you see a Delta IV launch, the legacy of being able to do that, to be, be able to store those fuels, to be able to pump them in a rocket engine, that goes back to Project Rover and NERVA. Beyond NERVA looks at what information is available and how it can be used today. It's time for another episode of the Cold Star Project, the podcast about the unexpected challenges of scaling businesses and space. I'm wearing my National Space Society hat today, which I've been a member for a long time. And today we have Stuart Graham. I want to call him Eustratius Graham because that's his name, but he likes to go by Stuart. So we're going to call him that. That's fine. Fine. And <laughs> I've known Stuart for a while, had a couple calls with him. He's a fun guy. And what he is, and I got to make sure I get these words right, because he does not want to be called an expert in the field, but he, he is compared to the average person running around. He, he is a self-taught, independent archivist and historian of nuclear propulsion, which I find super exciting. And I remember the first time I talked to you, I, I realized just how little I knew. <laughs> and it wasn't, you know, you made me feel good about it. <laughs> and, and I learned a lot. But there was a first moment of, oh my gosh, this is an area of space I know next to nothing about. So I'm really glad to have you on because I thought what we could do today is kind of do a little bit of a primer about nuclear propulsion, what it is, different methodologies, and get folks up to speed on, on at least two or three different methods here. So thanks for being here. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. All right. So uh, how on earth did you decide to get into this field? I mean, it's not like you wake up in the morning and go, oh, I'm going to become an archivist and historian of nuclear propulsion. Well, so I grew up in a DOE family in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So nuclear was kind of all around me. None of my family were directly involved in nuclear itself because the DOE does a ton of things that aren't directly nuclear related. Um, but nuclear power was always fascinating to me and space was always fascinating to me. And fairly early on, I discovered that these two things actually do go together sometimes. Hmm. Um, unfortunately, uh, being raised in a very practical family of engineers, um, I was told, okay, well, great. There's probably about 200 jobs in the world in this industry. And at the time, in the late 80s and early 90s, um, the lesson that I was taught was basically, okay, you go into nuclear engineering and you can get a really lucrative contract decommissioning nuclear power plants, and that's all you're ever going to do with your career, which is an absolutely terrible thing to say to a teenager with big dreams about flying nuclear-powered rockets in space. Mm. Um, and so I ended up 
going into other things and bouncing around between a whole bunch of things. And later, as an adult, I went back and I looked at the things that I'd found as a kid, and I realized this really isn't that hard. Um, there's a lot of terminology that you've got to learn. It's just like any other field. And there's a lot of physics and engineering considerations involved. But if you sit down, if you're patient with yourself, and if you ask questions, it's not an insurmountable field to understand. Um, and so since then, I have been doing a lot of research. I've been talking to a lot of people. I've been writing a lot. And I started up this website called Beyond Nerva, which is something that I wished that I had when I started this process. Um, there's this absolutely invaluable website called Atomic Rockets, um, run by a person that I'm getting to know now um, online, Wenchel Chung. And he has done an incredible job of basically making a research or a resource rather for sci-fi authors for game developers that sort of thing so that they can make their games or their plots or whatever more realistic and he posts a lot of original source material but he's writing this as a resource for fiction mm -hmm. what i'm trying to do is i'm trying to make a parallel resource that's grounded in the engineering and the physics of how these things actually work. Um, and so I've been actively doing that for about two years now. And it's been an incredible process. Um, I've made a lot of connections that I never expected that I would. Um, I've been able to find information on these systems that I didn't know was out there, um, that most people didn't know was out there. I think I have broken Google's search algorithms in ways that most people haven't. Um, so I'm able to find more information. And yeah, um, I've never been paid in the industry. Um, I've never done any formal work in the industry. But at the same time, I have gained a lot of knowledge and I have gained a lot of insight into what's been done in the past and what's being done right now. Right. I mean, listeners, viewers, he's <laughs> a pretty <laughs> humble guy. So he says that, yes, but also the doors that have been opened because you've stuck with this thing. Um, have, have been good, you know, and you've been able to connect with people inside agencies and have a legal chit chats, shall we say, right? No, no crazy information is being passed back and forth. But I, I think, you know, you have, you have a lot of credibility um, when you talk and, and I really enjoy that. I, I, I think that's a powerful thing about sticking with something and kind of creating and creating creating and gathering compiling this information and then filtering it and writing about it and so beyond nerva is a great i would call it hard science resource right it's it's heavy reading <laughs> you, know, it's, you don't go there to uh to just blow off some steam and watch stupid cat videos right? 
It's no. very serious, lots of math, um, good pictures, history. Very right? little math. That's actually mm. the one okay. thing that I work hard to do is I avoid the equations. If you're interested in the equations, I do extensive referencing. Mm -hmm. Every single reference that I use is outside of a paywall, for free, available online. And if you're interested in the math, read the paper because I don't have the hard math background required in order to be able to take these specific use cases and generalize them. Hmm. Um, so math, not so much. Um, material science, a bit more. Mm -hmm. um, engineering considerations, I don't skip over. I just don't go into the math behind them. Um, so it's, I'm trying to still figure out where that good medium point is, where it's accessible for people um, that know a little bit about these systems and want to know more. But at the same time, also interesting to professionals in the field where they can come to my website or my blog and either learn something new or find more resources that they didn't have access to in the first place. So. Right. Now, nuclear propulsion has had a long history, probably longer than people think. And even you and I uh, coming up with some questions today, we're bouncing around and I was like, well, what about the space race? Nope. Before that. Well, what about splitting the atom, the Manhattan project? Nope. Probably before that. So no take us there. <laughs> okay. Where did, it, where did this idea start? Hey, we could we could use nuclear power to push spaceships around. Okay, so during the Manhattan Project in Los Alamos, there was this basically deal that happened. And if you ever read um, Richard Feynman's mm. um, memoirs, you actually hear his side to this. Mm -hmm. Basically, the what would become the Atomic Energy Commission, which split and now is the um, Department of Energy and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. We're trying to figure out, okay, so we can make a big boom. And it's a very expensive big boom, but it's still just a big boom. What else can we do? And so they went to all the engineers and all of the scientists and were like, okay, what can we do with this stuff? And a lot of them were really obvious that they were already working towards uh, Chicago piles one and two were evolving into nuclear power plants for terrestrial use. Um, and then they were talking about um, what would eventually become Project Plowshare, where um, they were looking at using nuclear weapons to take new harbors and to do fracking natural gas. Hmm. It was actually an early idea. Um, and they actually did, I think, one test explosion. Turns out that wasn't such a good idea. Um, but one of the people that was involved in the Manhattan Project, Stanislaw Ulam, who was a refugee physicist, said, hey, we can take the boom, we can make it smaller, and then we've got a spacecraft on one side, a shock absorber on the other, in order to make it so that you don't just completely shatter the spacecraft. And then you just keep on firing bombs out the back, mm -hmm. and the explosive force pushes you forward. Um, 
so this was the basis behind what became known as Project Orion, um, which was headed at General Atomics by Freeman Dyson. Um, his son, did, George, did an absolutely wonderful book on this, um, which I always get the title wrong on. I want to say it's To Mars by Abel. Um, but if you search George Dyson, um, A-bomb, you'll find the book. Uh, and there was a BBC documentary that was done a few years later on it as well. Um, so that was the first idea. Um, sometimes they called it the putt-putt spacecraft. Because <laughs> um, what would happen is they would take these tiny shaped nuclear charges. Um, it didn't explode spherically it exploded in a cone. And so the size of the cone, when it hits the spacecraft, is the same size as the base of your shock absorber. And that's how you move forward. Um, so that was the first idea. Um, but very quickly, two other ideas came up as well. Uh, the first one was, okay, we're learning how to turn the heat from the fission process into electricity. And we're mm -hmm. learning about this new thing called electric propulsion. What if we stick the two together? Um, and so that's called nuclear electric propulsion. Um, and it's still a major area of focus. Um, and that's really good for very efficient travel. Um, it's not so good when you look at very short distances most of the time. Um, just because of the way the majority of electric thrusters work. Um, if you go onto my website, I actually break down all the different types of electric thrusters and what they're good for and not. But in general, the thing they aren't good at is thrust. They're really efficient, but they aren't high thrust systems. So if you're going from here to the moon, you really don't want to use most electric thrusters for a crude spacecraft. If it doesn't matter if you get there in three months, great, use a hall thruster. If it does, your astronauts aren't going to want to wait that long, right? So they came up with another idea. In a traditional rocket engine, you are, you've got a fuel and you've got an oxidizer and you burn them. And as they burn, they expand, and you push that out of a nozzle, and that's how a rocket engine works. Mm -hmm. If you aren't relying on combustion for your heat, and instead you use a nuclear reactor to produce the heat, it doesn't matter to a certain degree what you put in to the rocket engine. You don't have to worry about, does this and that burn well? together. And so they looked at this and they were like, you know what, we've got the makings of a pretty good rocket engine. here. Um, it's higher thrust than the electric propulsion options, but it's also higher specific impulse or higher efficiency than the chemical options that we have available. Um, and so that sparked nuclear thermal rocket um, experimentation and designs. And so each of these was investigated um, very early in the space race um, by both sides, 
really. Um, it's still incredibly difficult to get information out as far as the Soviet side of this. Mm. Um, we have a couple of designs that we know about. Um, I don't know that I've ever seen a Soviet pulse propulsion like Project Orion design, but we've got nuclear thermal designs and nuclear electric designs from the Soviet Union going back to the 50s. Um, in the US, they also started in the late 40s, early 50s with formal programs, with actual budgets and actual staff rather than a whole bunch of engineering um, geeks that happen to know nuclear um, processes sitting around a coffee table bouncing ideas off of each other. Um, so you end up with Project Orion for the Pulse propulsion. You end up with the SNAP program, Assistance for Nuclear Auxil uh, Auxiliary Power for the nuclear electric side of things, which also was meant to power space stations and moon bases and that sort of thing. And then you've got Project Rover on the nuclear thermal side of things. Um, and all of these basically went to about the same time. Um, when NASA landed on the moon, all of it, even before they landed on the moon, their budget was just being slaughtered. And part of that budget cut process was eliminating all the need you had for all these advanced propulsion systems. So everything went out the window by the late 70s. Um, since then, all of them have been reinvestigated. Some more, I wouldn't necessarily say seriously, I would say more fiscally bad than others. Um, pulse propulsion is very efficient. You get very high thrust. It's the closest thing that we have to sci-fi starships. Hmm. The problem is you're using several nuclear explosives a second. How many depends on what design you're using and that sort of thing in order to push you forward. Um, and the Outer Space Treaty and political considerations from most of the world powers really make it very hard to put several thousand nuclear explosives into orbit and then use them. Right, because like that's my first question. I mean, I saw this in a in a library book in high school. I mean, thirty years ago, right? We're talking the late eighties here. And, mm -hmm. um, it just seemed insane to me. I mean, even back then, I knew this is going to create a line of radiation. How long does that stick around? What about dissipation? Is that it? You know, from the look on your face, it doesn't seem to be as dangerous as I thought it was. So, so tell us about that. Okay, so the first thing that you have to remember is this isn't a, a spherical explosion that we're mm -hmm. talking about in the vast majority of cases. It's a shape charge. Yep. Um, so, like, you have holding charges with high explosives if you need to, like, breach a wall or if you're, like, doing demolition and you need to destroy a column, what you do is you create a cone of explosive force, and there's really no force on the other side. Hmm. 
you can do this with nuclear explosives as well. And so that's what they're doing with this Orion concept is you've got a cone of radiation that you tailor the radiation to what you want um, hmm. to a certain degree. Um, the stuff that hits the spacecraft isn't the bomb itself. It's a propellant that you add to the explosive. And usually it's some variation of styrofoam. Um, if you want it to produce a lot more thrust, you can use a metal of some sort, that sort of thing. But generally speaking, it's a variation of some very lightweight plastic that's used. Um, as for how much impact surrounding the explosion other than on your pusher plate there is, it's fairly minimal. Um, you do get a flash of gamma rays, but the extent to which that would have an impact on anybody in the vicinity is probably minimal. Um, and I'm not a health physics expert, so this is one of those areas that I'm continuing to do a lot of research into. But one of the reasons that this was never done is a good example of how not really that dangerous it is. Hmm. Um, these pulse units could be stuck into an electromagnetic barrel with a breach, and then you use the same pulse weapon as basically halfway between a nuclear shotgun and flamethrower. Okay. <laughs> as a weapon. And the original designs for this were on a crewed ship. So you could have dozens of these properly contained going off in your spacecraft. And as long as the blast is exiting the spacecraft, you're okay. Um, so while it's not technically a weapon, it can be used as ammunition for a weapon, which makes it even more complicated, um, especially with the concerns about weaponization of space, the use of weapons of mass destruction in space, that sort of thing, really politically makes a pulse drive system mostly a no-go. Um, which is why, while there have been newer designs proposed over the years, it really hasn't gone anywhere. Nobody's put a huge amount of money into it past, like, master's theses or, like, Los Alamos saying, okay, here's a couple hundred dollars to publish a paper on this idea that you had. And that's basically as far as it's gone. So, um... For the nuclear electric and nuclear thermal side of things, um, you don't want to be right up against the reactor, um, especially because they aren't completely shielded because space is empty. Um, so if you look at all the realistic nuclear spacecraft designs and definitely check out Winchell Chung's website, Atomic Rockets, for literally, oh, it might be hundreds at this point of designs that people have done that are realistic um, for using nuclear propulsion. If you look at them, there's 
the engine here, sorry, there's the engine here, and then the entire ship expands out past it in a cone. Because with the engine, you've got a shield right here. And so that's the only part that's shielded around the reactor. This isn't really that big a deal, as long as you know what's going on and as long as you plan for it. And in space, you have to know everything that's going on. You have to plan for everything. And so it introduces some mission complications, but at the same time, it also makes a lot more missions possible. It makes a lot more missions much more effective. Um, so it's really a set of enabling technologies that improve crude spaceflight, uncrewed spaceflight, um, new probes to deep space to around the sun, all of these different concepts become more available using either nuclear thermal or nuclear electric propulsion. And so NASA, Roscosmos, the DOE, Rosatom, all these other organizations who look at space and nuclear around the world have invested a lot of money into this and are currently investing a lot of money into this. Um, the two big ones right now in the US are NASA is investing a lot of money into a low enriched uranium nuclear thermal propulsion system. Um, and I did an extensive write up on this on my website, but basically it's a rocket that runs on hydrogen and a nuclear reaction um, using low enriched uranium instead of the highly enriched uranium that the traditional rockets, uh, nuclear thermal rockets, um, which makes it a lot easier for like universities and private mm. companies to be able to collaborate because the restrictions on nuclear material get a lot easier if you're in low enriched versus high enriched. Um, so there was a new tranche of funding um, for $150 million for working on the design of the rocket, which is already very, very thoroughly researched. There's just a few odds and ends to finish up. And the majority of that is going into a test stand so that we can actually test these things for the first time since the 1970s. So that's major project number one. The other major project is kilopower, which again, I've done a fairly extensive write-up on my website and I was lucky enough to talk to the head of the project at Los Alamos and the chief designer of the project at Los Alamos uh, over the course of my research. I still keep in touch with both of them. Um, and this is a nuclear electric design. Um, so this is produ producing power. Um, it's looking like the first use of it is going to be on a moon base. Um, I saw a slide with the year 2024 as the first demonstration on the surface. This is just a slide I've seen in a NASA presentation. I haven't heard 
any information about how plausible this is. We don't have a lander that can fly the reactor to the surface mm -hmm. for the start. But they're saying 2040, 2024 to 2026 is kind of when they're talking about having this go. But the team also designed a spacecraft using this reactor. Um, and that's still in process, but it's not a very high priority. Um, where you're replacing Galileo and Cassini-type spacecraft, which use radioisotope thermoelectric generators, um, or turning radioactive decay heat into electricity with a fission-powered system. Um, so Kilopower underwent a nuclear test about a year ago now, um, and this is a big deal because this is the first unique nuclear reactor architecture to be tested in the U.S. since the Atomic Energy Commission was still running things in the 1970s. Yeah, so it's and, been a very long time. <laughs> and the first reactor, the first reactor they tested, the first reactor they approved was for use in space. And so that's really, it's really incredible because it shows how important this field is, not just for those that are involved in astronuclear engineering, as it's called, but for the entire official nuclear establishment. Right, yeah, it wasn't for consumer testing use right it was it was for this specific application now would these ships and that be built in space in orbit or would they be built on the ground and launched well it depends if you're talking something the size of like cassini then that's going to be built on the ground and then loaded onto a rocket and then launched up as a unit if you're looking at nasa's current designs for getting a crewed mission to Mars, then there are several launches involved. Um, the smallest architecture that I have seen for a nuclear thermal crewed rocket was something like two or three launches. Hmm. Uh, generally speaking, you're talking four to six launches and then you assemble those parts in orbit. Um, kind of like the way the ISS was done with a few fiddly bits changed around. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so it's going to be manufactured on Earth mm -hmm. and then launched into space and then the modules that were fabricated on Earth will be integrated in space for use. As long as we don't have any rocket explosions, we're good. <laughs> so my, my background originally, way back when, uh, in the 90s, was in the power generation field. Uh, and generally with um, like cogeneration power plants, so mm -hmm. diesel, natural gas powered. Uh, didn't do too much with nuclear. But I understand the principle where you heat water into steam with the, the radiation, right? And that boils up and turns turbines and that. How, how, what, is, what is the system like for nuclear electric? Complicated. 
Um, <laughs> it right. Basically, it's so you've got a lot of options. There is a mm. few different ways that you can use solid state systems to convert heat into electricity okay. um, using the Seebeck effect um, is the most common one. It's also called the thermoelectric effect. This is what we do on Curiosity rover. This is what we're going to do on Mars 2020. This is how Cassini and Galileo and Voyager and most of the pioneers, these were all thermoelectric powered systems. Um, where at the junction between two different metals or semiconductors mm -hmm. that have slightly different um, electron um, transmission properties, if you've got a hot side and a cold side right. along the join, it generates power at single digit efficiency, hmm. but it's solid state. So this is how we've mostly done things. Kilopower and a number of other designs are using a free piston Stirling engine, um, which is a one of the first designs to convert heat into work. Um, and theoretically, they can be very efficient. NASA has tested these extensively for a number of applications. Um, and this is the first system that really got them over their hesitancy to have moving parts mm -hmm. <laughs> for the first time since the 70s. But you go back and you look at the designs that have been proposed, there's a number of other options. Um, the steam cycle that you were talking about is called the Rankine cycle. And it's done with water on Earth all the time and it's incredibly efficient. But water can only carry so much heat. Mm -hmm. and right, so, so I was wondering, yeah, what method are they using? <laughs> so when NASA was initially looking at doing a ranking cycle on a spacecraft, they were using a mercury ranking cycle. So they would, instead of boiling water and using mm -hmm. that expansion, they were boiling mercury okay. and using that expansion. Um, lithium was also looked at, hmm. um, so it's mostly liquid metals. That yeah, they were heavy looking. atomic weights. Yeah, well, it's more thermal capacity yeah. um, that drives this, but that's just one option. You've also got the gas cycle or the Brayton cycle. Um, and one of the designs that I saw was for a potassium Brayton turbine hmm. so it's a gas generator cycle using metal vapor instead of hmm. traditional um like um helium or something like that the right. helium designs are also proposed because gaseous metal is incredibly corrosive um to pretty much everything um there's materials that you can use, but they tend to be expensive. They tend to be difficult to work with. And helium, generally speaking, gets you enough efficiency, or, I mean, there's other options, argons, that you can use those. Uh, and then there's some exotic concepts, I guess, like um, 
the sodium heat engine or alkali metal thermoelectric converter or AMTEC um, designs that use convection and other um, methods of moving liquid metals of particular types between different subcomponents so that while there isn't a turbine spinning, you get the effect of a turbine spinning because of the movement of these metals. Okay. Um, you get magnetohydrodynamic converters, which are actually very commonly used in industry today. Um, it's basically an electromagnetic pump run backwards. Um, so you've got all of these options. And because there isn't really an industry standard, because we've flown 34 reactors total um, of three different designs, that's not a huge design ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of options for designers out there, and they've all been investigated to a fairly extensive degree historically, but they've never flown. So how do they cool down? Because you're, you're producing heat, at, heating up this metal. It's a gas now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now what? Right. So um, you end up with, you've always got to have a thermal gradient mm -hmm. in order to generate work. Um, so you've got to keep your cold site cold. And they use radiators, just mm -hmm. like the ISS uses and that sort of thing. These radiators, sometimes they're water-based, like Kilopower uses a water heat pipe system. And a heat pipe is, um, you've got about 80 of them in your house, even if you don't know it, pretty much every single form of electronics uses them. But it's a wick where one side boils mm -hmm. and then the vapor goes to the other side and then condenses and then gets wicked back to the boiling point. Okay, so um, this is a closed system, I don't need to refuel it? Like I got an oil heater over here <laughs> if for when it gets cold in the winter, it does a great job and I don't have to touch the oil. It's in there. It's closed off. Right. Okay. Yes. And um, it obviously heats up, cools down, heats up, cools down. Sometimes they'll use like liquid metals. Sometimes it's an organic system. It really all depends on how much power you're putting out, uh, how much you have as far as mass goes. Because this is space, every single gram counts. Because every single gram that you've got to put into your radiator is a gram that you can't put another scientific instrument on hmm. or whatever. Um, so the vast majority of them are closed systems. Um, the only ones that routinely are not are nuclear thermal rockets. Because they also have coolant. But that coolant is your propellant, which mm. is hydrogen. And so that's an open cooling system. Yeah. But most of the time, you aren't generating electricity from that same system. Mm. And um, I imagine you're not reusing them over and over again as much as... So if I'm remembering correctly, the... NASA requirements for the current NTR, something like 100 hours of operation. Okay. So that is several trips back and forth to Mars. 
Um, and by this point, the reactor has only burnt up about 1% of hmm. the amount of nuclear energy in the core. But the fuel elements and a few of the other components are wearing out because they're going from very cold to very hot fairly mm -hmm. rapidly. And then the reverse. And strange things happen to materials in a nuclear reactor core. And fuel elements start to swell and crack and that sort of thing. So even if there's power in them, you can't usefully get the power out. Um, but there's no reason why, in theory, with proper maintenance, um, which we don't have the facilities to do in space, you couldn't have a nuclear thermal rocket engine that operates for tens or hundreds of thousands of hours, if not more, and you just treat it like your car's engine. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, my alternator just started making terrible noises and stopped charging my battery. Time to get a new alternator. Um, Got to do an oil change. Exactly. Which is, which is more what I was thinking about. It's like, are there consumables here we have to keep replacing? In some mm -hmm. of the cases, yes, and some, no, yeah. is what I've learned today. All right. I follow the U.S. Department of Energy's Office of Nuclear Energy page on Facebook, and they're constantly putting up infographics, basically saying, don't worry about nuclear power. It's safe. Relax, people. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, How much of this is public relations? How much of it is real? So, generally speaking, this isn't exactly my bailiwick. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's something that I know about because, yeah, you want to make sure that what you're proposing These is are safe. <laughs> um, nuclear power is the safest form of electricity generation on Earth by a number of metrics. But the one that most people look at is deaths per terawatt hour. So, how many bodies does it take to keep your lights on in your city? Which I consider a pretty good metric. Um, and that surprises a lot of people. Um, but if you think about it, how many roofers hmm. fall off houses and get killed installing rooftop solar or fixing it or that sort of thing? How many people end up dying from usually they can't fall off the wind turbines because they're required to be clipped in but like if you're an electrician at the substations that are then feeding in to the grid and something goes wrong um situations like that and part of that is due to regulatory stringency um because if you're doing the same thing in a gas-fired power plant and a nuclear power plant, you better expect that the safety requirements and the amount of oversight in the nuclear plant is going to be far higher for the same process with the exact same equipment. Um, but it also comes down to nuclear power doesn't really require that many resources compared to other forms of power generation. Um, especially when you look at coal and natural gas. And I mean, you mentioned the Office of Nuclear Energy. They've got great infographics talking about the energy density and the carbon dioxide footprint and that sort of thing on nuclear power. But 
a lot of it comes down to the industry as a whole, as a general rule, is very careful with their people. And as a whole, the industry doesn't require as many resources with all of the chances to have accidents happen, that sort of thing, that those increased resources make mm-hmm. more possible. Okay. And, and frankly, there's the news shock factor, basically. If something goes wrong in a nuclear plant, it's, oh my gosh, this is weird. First of all, that should be your first signal. Exactly. People don't report roofers falling off roofs because... It's normal. Yeah. Sorry, roofers. <laughs> I've been up on roofs doing, uh, I ran a metal fab shop and we'd get up there to put on chimney caps and things like that. And I, I don't like it. <laughs> not, I'm not good on heights. So, so okay. So it's, it's very safe compared to other forms. It's just reported on more when something crazy happens. So what are you intending to do with Beyond Nerva, uh, which is, uh, let's spell it out and then tell people what Nerva was so that they understand like where that name came from and then we'll we'll close up okay so uh let's start with what nerva was uh nerva was a program it was a collaboration between the atomic energy commission and nasa during the 1950s to 1970s um ish um as part of project rover um which was the overall nuclear thermal propulsion program NERVA stands for Nuclear Engines for Rocket Vehicle Applications. So their whole thing was designing a nuclear thermal rocket, and they did it. Hmm. It was ready to fly. If we had gone to Mars in the early 1980s, like we were told in Apollo, NERVA was the engine that was going to get us that. Um, And I've been incredibly fortunate to talk to some of the people that were involved in the program. Um, the, they overcame a huge number of technical hurdles that we still use that information today. They're the first ones to figure out how to handle cryogenic hydrogen propellant. Hmm. Every single time you see a Delta four launch, the legacy of being able to do that, to be, be able to store those fuels, to be able to pump them in a rocket engine that goes back to project Rover and Nerva. Um, so Beyond Nerva looks at what information is available and how it can be used today. Um, I've got probably another eight to 75 years of work um, in order to be able to I guess, collate the information that's available out there and make it as accessible as possible, um, including starting to do primers that are less intense than my usual work. Um, but near term, the plan is to continue covering the technology as it is developed in the current day and make the historical programs more available um, while filling in the gaps as far as like, this is what a ranking cycle is. These are the variations that have been proposed and here's the advantages and disadvantages. 
speech. Um, I've actually got a blog post that I've edited about 95 times on exactly that subject. Um, so that's the sort of thing that I'm going to be focusing on for the near future. Um, eventually, I would like to get the resources together so that I can do some independent modeling. Um, the vast majority of the computer programs that are used in the nuclear field are available for free online open source with wonderful resources as far as like um, things like Stack Exchange or Stack Overflow where it's like, I need to do this with this particular program. And there's a place that you can go and ask questions. The, an equivalent occurs with the vast majority of nuclear design software in the world. So I would like to continue that um, with making, eventually being able to remodel this stuff. Because some people, like sometimes you misplace a decimal point or, oh, I didn't know that um, uranium molybdenum alloys did this under this particular radiation flux at this temperature and this pressure. And so you overlook something, that sort of thing. And this is more of a letting, being able to have a conversation with the people that are actually designing these things in order to figure out a little bit more about what's going on, that sort of thing. Um, I would like to continue the news side of things and keeping people updated on who's doing what, where, and that sort of thing. Um, and eventually I would like to become the place you go for the real life engineering and science behind nuclear powered spacecraft and space stations and surface bases and that sort of thing. But that's going to be a few decades away. <laughs> Perhaps sooner. <laughs> well, very good. That's a, that's a fantastic goal. Thanks for being here today, Stuart. My guest today has been Stuart Graham. He's a self-taught independent archivist and historian of nuclear propulsion. You can check out his blog and resource at beyondnerva.com, uh, is it, or .org? .com. Okay. And they can, I know I've been there. It's just automatic though. When I start typing beyond, it just auto completes. And uh, also you're, you're very active on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle? Um, at beyond Nerva. Okay. Hey. And then there's also a uh, Facebook group um, that because of certain anti-nuclear activist behaviors that I've run across in the past um, is set to, uh, private but if you want to join the Facebook group just send a membership request and I'll add you in there there's about a thousand people in the group so yeah Twitter good. Facebook, the blog beyondnova.com all right well I appreciate you being here so uh, if you want to follow what Stuart's doing, go check those things out. I'm Jason Canigan, the founder of Cold Star Technologies. If you're running an organization or in an organization that's at the sort of the confluence of compliance cultures, where you gotta follow rules to get things done, uh, and you're on a 
time critical mission and you want to be the best, then you should be talking to us. Thanks for listening. <laughs>